Now, um, I should say that uh, uh, tonight's talk isn't really my talk. Dan Godden wrote this talk and I poached it off him this afternoon because um, Josh, who was going to be speaking, is sick and so he couldn't speak. And so here I am with someone else's talk. So know that if you've heard these words before, it's not an amazing coincidence. I stole it off Dan. All right. And a lot of you don't know Dan and you don't care, but that's all right. Now, man, how was that Bible reading? That was, that was pretty crazy, wasn't it? Like, it was, it was wild. Um, last week was kind of like you kind of Quentin Tarantino type uh, Bible reading with Ehud and the, and the dude who gets stabbed in the guts and he poos himself and it all goes everywhere. That happened last week in the Bible. Uh, this week's kind of like, I don't know if anyone's ever seen any of these movies, like a Coen Brothers kind of movie, just kind of like bizarre. Like you just kind of got all these strange little plots and things going on all over the place and they end up coming together at the end with a dude who gets a tent peg drilled through his head and that's the end of it. Like it's a little bit like that. It's just really weird stuff. Now, before we kind of get to the details of this passage, I actually want to take a moment to talk about Judges, the book that we're in right now, because it's a part of the Bible. It's God's word to us. But at the same time, it's, it's pretty confusing, isn't it? Like, it's pretty weird. How are we meant to read this stuff? What do you do with it? Like, it just seems like a story of crazy violence and weird names and all that kind of stuff. What's it actually got to do with, with you? What's it got to do with us? I want to actually suggest that it's actually got a lot to do with, with us. We just need to step back from the story and see the bigger picture of what's going on there. See, the God of the Bible is a God who saves people for his glory. That's at the very center of who God is. He's a savior. He is. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible and God, maybe it's your first time at EV Youth or your first time looking at the Bible, um, that's what God is like. He's a God who saves people. It's a huge fundamental part of his character. And it's a good thing that God is like that. And the Bible shows us that this is who God is in a whole bunch of ways in lots of different places in the Bible. But the biggest way that it shows us the fact that God is a God who saves people is when it shows us Jesus as he dies on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross to save people. And so as we read Judges each week, for example, here at Eva Youth over this term, what we're going to get is we're going to get story after story of people being saved by God. We're going to get picture after picture, shadow after shadow of a God who saves people ultimately through his son, Jesus I said Jesus funny, Jesus. Um, and, and that's why it's so exciting. That's why it's such an exciting book because what we see in these passages is a picture of Jesus. It shows us what God is like. Now, what does this particular story show us about God? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. That's what we're going to do. Now, I should say as well, it's worthwhile saying, when I use the word story here, I'm talking about the Bible and I say this story or that story, I'm not using the word story like as in it's a fictional story that got made up. No, that's not the point. I'm saying the word story because it is written in story form. It's a, it's a narrative, but it's a true story. It's the truth. It's what happened. And so let's jump into this true story and, and find out about our God tonight. Let's meet God in this story tonight. Um, a whole bunch of us have prayed, but I'm going to pray one more time. 
Father God, please reveal yourself to us tonight in your word. I pray you'd help me to speak clearly. I pray that we would have hearts to, to listen to you. I pray that when we see who you are, we'd be, we'd be struck appropriately by that, Lord, and, and, and give you praise for it. Amen. All right. Now, this story's got to start with some background information, right? Chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, we're kind of starting from verse 1. Um, if you didn't notice, um, Shamgar, just above in verse 31 of chapter 3, has just happened. Check out Shamgar, just for a bit of fun. Here's a little tour of Shamgar. Verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. And then we end up at Deborah. Like, what, what have you guys done with your life lately? But you haven't done what Shamgar did in that sentence. He's doing well for himself. But anyway, we're in chapter 4, verse 1, right? Um, and check out chapter 4, verse 1 there. I'll read it. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So that's how our story starts. And it's how the story starts each week if you haven't caught on. Last week we heard about Ehud, the lefty, the left-handed saviour. And because of Ehud, he brought peace to Israel for 80 years. But once again, they do evil and the cycle starts all over again. They turn back to their false gods and and the cycle just kind of ticks over. God saves them, they sin, and here they are again. And just like last week you had Eglon, the king of the Moabites, uh, this week you've got Jabin, the king of Canaan, who gets raised up by God. And he lives in a place called Hazor. Now, already I can see you guys kind of starting to drift off as I talk about Jabin and Hazor and Canaanites and all that kind of stuff. So Dan has nicely made us this map here, and we're going to use this map to kind of find our way through this story, all right? So first of all, you've got King Jabin, and he lives in Hazor. In Hazor. It's right there. Now, follow me in your Bibles as you look at the map as well. Verse, uh, chap- uh, verse 2, the second part. Um, the commander of Jabin's army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheph Hagoyim. And so you can see that there. No one really knows exactly where that is, but they th- archaeologists think that Harosheph Hagoyim is there. Now, the map's not, it's above it, is it? It's gone. Where's Harishif? Ah, oh, HH. Uh, I, I didn't make this map. That's my problem. All right. And so Sisera, right, he's got a bunch of iron chariots. He's got 900 iron chariots. So he's like Jabin's muscle. Chariots are, are hard to beat. They were pretty rare back then. They're like tanks, right? And so there's the tanks of, um, of Sisera at Harishif Hagayim. I should note that tanks are just easier to put on a PowerPoint than chariots, so that's partly how we got to here. So Israel, right, they're under the thumb of this Jabin guy and Sisera and all his chariots and stuff like that. And then meanwhile, down in Israel, they have a judge called uh, Deborah. You can see her in verses 4 and 5. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her and she decided their disputes. So you can see Deborah there and her sweet palm tree, and she's judging Israel in the south. So she's hanging out down here in the south, and then up in the north near this King Jabin character, he's basically kind of running the show up there. Something happens, though, to kind of change the situation. Deborah calls, like gives a ring, she goes and finds this guy called Barak, in verse 6, he comes from Kadesh. And so where's Barak? There he is. He's, he's pretty close. He's up there in among the action. Now, apparently this Barak guy from the story seems like a pretty good guy generally, and God seems to choose him to do this stuff. 
It's never really made clear why this Deborah chick is running the show instead of Barrack. Maybe it's because they live so far away. But anyway, Deborah tells this Barrack guy, get 10,000 men from the northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, get those 10,000 men from those two tribes and go to Mount Tabor, which is right there. So head to that mountain. And, and, he, and she says that, sorry, God says, I will lure Sisera, the dude with the tanks, to the Kishon River. And God will give over Sisera, this general, into Barak's hands. So there's the plan that Deborah gives them. But Barak, he hesitates. He gets a word from God himself and he chokes. He doesn't want to go without Deborah. If you don't go, Deborah, I won't go. Now remember, God's already said to this guy, I'm going to give you the victory. You are going to win this thing. But, he, but he, he, he chokes. He doesn't need this prophetess, but he just wants her there for some reason, like a lucky charm or something like that. And so Deborah says, okay, I'll come with you. But because of the way you're going about this whole thing, verse 9, look at verse 9. The honor from this victory won't go to you. It's actually going to go to God. God will hand Sisera into the hands of a woman. It's outrageous. It's terrible. A woman's going to get the victory. Now, it seems like a kind of a weird kind of sexist punishment to us, doesn't it? It's like, if you do the wrong thing, a woman will take the victory. And it sounds super sexist. Um, but think about what this means for Barak for a second. See, he's saying a woman's going to be the one who brings the victory. Now, you can straight away rule out Barak. Clearly, he's not going to be the one who gets the victory and kills this guy because he's a man. But not only that, you guys need to know that there weren't any women in the army with Barak. And so it's not going to even be Barak's army who ends up killing Sisera. He's going to get handed into the hands of a woman. He's going to completely take this victory out of Barak's hands. And God's going to do it in such a way that it's going to be clear that it was God who did it. Now, we're going to come back to that because that's an important part of this story. But at the moment, as you kind of hear the story unfolding, pretend you don't know the end, who do you think this woman is going to be? You've only heard up to this point, and the woman's going to... Who's it going to be? Yeah, you think it's going to be Deborah. Deborah is like she's going to the battle with him. She's going to be there. And you think, yeah, surely Deborah is the one who's going to end up stealing all the glory. But it's like a twist in a movie. Anyway, we'll, we'll come, well, you've seen the end, and so you've seen the twist. It's like a twist in a movie. So anyway, Deborah goes with Barak up to Kadesh to meet the troops to get ready to fight. And then almost out of nowhere in verse 11, you get this random aside. Like you got all this action, they're going to the battle. Verse 11, here it is, for some reason. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Ho. Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zarnamin near Kadesh. And then goes back to the story in verse 12. And you're like, as you read it, you're like, what the heck? Did I just like zone out for a sec? You, you guys didn't realize, hey, you assumed you'd zoned out and something crazy had happened. It just happens. It just, verse 11, suddenly you're here. Then verse 12, you're back into the story. What the heck's that got to do with anything? Why is verse 11 just dropped into the story like that? This guy decides to go get a tree change up in this place and he leaves his Kenite region down south and goes up there and moves his tent. Like, who even cares about this? If you're an Israelite reading this story, you're not going to care. Like, he's not even an Israelite. He's just some Kenite. Seems like it's got nothing to do with anything. But what we don't see is that God 
or we can see it when we point it out, is clearly moving and shaping events and people to accomplish his goals. And we're going to come back to that as the story unfolds. But then we find ourselves in verse 12 again. Sisera gets told that Barak has an army at Mount Tabor, and so he takes his tanks, he takes his chariots and all his men, and they go down to the Kishon River. Now, the Kishon River was probably like a, a plain or something like that, which would have been a good place to have a fight. Um, but whether it was a good place to have a fight or not, that's the place that God lures Sisera to, just like God said it would happen. And then Deborah tells Barak, go down to... Go down that mountain and fight because God has gone ahead of you. And so Barak goes down the mountain and all the troops and the chariots and all that kind of stuff and and all all of Sisera's troops and the chariots, they kind of go into this panic and they all were tripping over themselves or whatever. And, And Barak and his men, they kill all of Sisera's men. They kill every man except Sisera. See verse 17? Sisera runs away on foot. Which you can imagine if you were Sisera's men as that's happening, that probably didn't feel very good, hey? Like you're getting slaughtered and all this stuff going on and then you see your leader just legging it over the hill. That's probably pretty scary. Anyway, so he, he runs off and he ends up, guess where? At the tent of Heba the Canaanite. What a crazy coincidence. How did that happen? And then all of a sudden... The story introduces another woman. Heber's wife, the guy who owns the joint, Jael. Now, Jael's a tricksy woman. She's a a sneaky lady. Um, Heber's probably off somewhere else. And so Sisera thinks to himself, this place is safe. These people, I can hide with them because he knows that Heber's a a Kenite. He's not an Israelite. Now, I should give you a bit of Kenite history. You ready for this? The Kenites, right, were allies with the Israelites. So they were mates with them. In Judges chapter 1, the Kenites helped the Israelites attack all the other nations and take over the land. But you can see here that this guy, Heber, well, he's been a trader and he's kind of gone up north and lived up north. And it says that he's friends with Jabin. So he's like a traitor to the Israelites, but they're kind of allies. It's this whole confused situation. Anyway, he makes friends with the enemy. He's up there, and, and Sisera goes and hides in this guy's camp, and he thinks he's going to be safe there. And so Jael comes along, and she covers him up in her tent, and he says, I'm thirsty. I've run so far, and he's, he's gone a long way, and he asks for some water, and what does she give him? Milk. That's right. It's like the classic kind of old school ancient drink spiking maneuver you know have a bit of milk oh, sorry can I have some water how about you have this warm tasty milk right here and just drink this that'll be lovely and you can just go off to sleep with your warm cup of milk and he's exhausted he's like hammered right he's smashed and so he falls asleep and and it's kind of this nice motherly picture what she does for him isn't it she kind of sidles up calms him down gives him the milk hushes him and tucks him into bed and then she takes a tent peg and smashes it through his temple. <laughs> um, and you can, and it's just, remember in um, last week's story in Eglon, it's the exact same. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, the blood. Yeah. So he does his thing. Yeah, it wouldn't look like that. Yeah. And, and the action actually slows down for this particular part of the story. Remember last week when King Eglon got killed by Ehud the lefty? The story slows down and it's like he took a sword from his, his right leg with his left hand or whatever and it's really slow. Look at verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer 
And she went quietly to him, and he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and just in case there's any doubt about it, he died. So Jails, she's a tricksy woman. She's, she's hectic. You, like, imagine being married to this chick, hey? It would be crazy scary. Every night you're kind of going to sleep and checking for hammers. It'd be, it would be tense. Um, and so there's what she does. And then all of a sudden, Barak turns up looking for Sisera. And Jael goes out to meet him as well. And you're kind of like, man, what's she going to do to this Barak guy next? Like, is she some kind of a psycho serial killer? Anyway... She takes him into the tent in verse 22 and she brings down another guy in her tent. She brought down Sisera by shoving a tent peg through his head. She brings down Barak by taking the honour for this kill from him. See, Barak's still out searching for Sisera. He thinks he's going to catch him. He's looking for him, but he doesn't find him. Instead, God is the one who gets the glory through Jael. Jael's a kind of interesting character, isn't she? She's kind of this random lady who just turns up in the story. What are we kind of meant to think of her as she does this stuff? Like, are we meant to go, man, that was some hectic evil lady, but I guess God used it for good. Like, how do we think about it? Flick over to chapter 5, and you'll see the song that Deborah and Barak sing after they have this victory. And as they Excuse me. As they sing, check out what they sing about Jael. Chapter 5, verse 24. Here's what God thinks of Jael. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heba the Canaanite. Most blessed, particularly, of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water. She gave him milk in a bowl fit for nobles. She brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera and crushed his head and shattered his temple and he sank and fell and he was dead and stuff like that. Deborah praises Jael for what's happened. She's done the right thing. She's killed God's enemy. In fact, Deborah's song points to the fact that the rest of Israel's tribes, they didn't do anything to fight off Sisera, but Jael does. And you find out more about Sisera as well, because you might be sitting there going, man, this is crazy. What kind of a psycho is, is God in this, this chick? Look, out, look at verse 28, because you find out about Sisera. Verse 28. Here's what this guy used to be like. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. So she's waiting for him to come home from war. She's like looking out through the window going, where's that Sisera guy, that guy who's my son and he's a general? And, and, and she's saying... Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of the chariot delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man. Colourful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colourful garments embroidered highly, um, embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder. So you can see what kind of man this guy is. He's the kind of guy who goes off running around the countryside, killing people and taking all their clothes and their women and bringing them home, going, hey, it was a good haul today, and his mum's at home waiting to see him come back with his haul. Sisera wasn't a good guy. He wasn't an innocent man. He was evil. And Jael here in this story, she does what's right. She crushes the head of the evil one. So here's the big story 
You've heard the story in some crazy detail with a crazy map and stuff like that. It's a good story. It's got some good twists in it and all that kind of stuff. But why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? I reckon this passage shows us at least three huge things about God. First thing it shows us is that God is a warrior. That's not a picture that we emphasize or talk much about very often, is it? We imagine God to kind of be a warm, smiling, generous God. And he is those things. The Bible talks about God in in some of those ways. But as you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and this chapter here, you can't miss the fact that God is the one who fights battles. He kills his enemies. He protects his people. See, look at the language all the way through chapter 4. Come back into chapter 4. Look at the way it talks about God through this whole story. Verse 6 in chapter 4, she sent for Barak to tell him this stuff. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take 10,000 men and do blah, blah, blah. Verse 7, I, the Lord, will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops into the river and give him into your hands. Check out verse 14. Look at this. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And then in verse 15, it all happens. Barak's, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and they abandoned him and started running off. Before Barak even got to the fight, God did it. He's the one who routed him. He did all of it. And then look at the conclusion of the story in verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before, Israel, before the Israelites. God is the one who's done it all. He subdued, he routed, he lured, he handed over, he went ahead, he fought, he crushed his enemies. This is a story about God fighting for his people. He's a warrior. That's a huge thing that Israel, it was critical that Israel realized this. See, who can Israel trust to save them when their enemies all around them in the, in the land just seem overwhelming? They don't have a king. Barak in this story isn't the hero. God is. He's a warrior. Nothing can stand against him. Not Sisera, not 900 chariots. God is stronger. God is the saviour. God is our saviour. And that's the way Israel saw their God. And you kind of have this tension that would have been there for Israel the whole time they were in the land, year in, year out, week in, week out, Will we trust God to be our warrior? Is he going to go out before us and fight for us? Barak didn't trust God. He wanted Deborah to go along like a lucky charm and all that kind of stuff. But God is the one who fights. This was kind of central to their theology as a people in Israel. Now, is this... Our theology. Is this what we believe about God? 
God is a warrior. Yes, he is. See, we live after our warrior gods, after our warrior gods greatest battle. We stand on the other side of the most important victory he ever achieved. The cross of Jesus was God's greatest battle. It's the battle that beats all battles. It's the victory that matters more than any other victory. It's the battle where God beat his enemies, our enemies, finally and completely. What are our enemies? What are the things that stand against us? Well, it's much worse than 900 chariots. Our sin, our death, our guilt, our shame, Satan himself, all those things are far worse than 900 chariots because those are the things that mean we deserve hell. That's the battle all of us had before us that we were going to have to fight on our own, but then God intervened in Jesus and he is victorious. He disarmed them by dying in our place. He conquered on them, he, he conquered them by dying on the cross for us. The cross, get this image, the cross stands in the ground like a sword, reminding us of God's great battle and his awesome victory over our enemies, over death, over sin, over Satan, all done, all defeated, all beaten by Jesus' death on the cross. And so he has won our battle. We can trust him completely as the one who has already fought for us. He saved us. God is a warrior God. Second thing this passage shows us, this is huge as well, and it flows from that first one, is this. God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. So who is the hero in this passage in in Judges 4? Well, remember the hero was Ehud in Judges 3. What about Judges 4? It's not really Deborah. She doesn't really do anything. She just kind of wanders around saying stuff, and, and that's kind of what she does. Barak missed out on being the hero altogether, it isn't even really JL. She just kind of turns up by opportunity and whacks a tenpeg through a guy's head. All those characters are just kind of there doing their thing, but the hero in this story is God. And so he's the one who gets the honor. He's the one who gets the glory. And you, can, you know that's going to happen straight away from verse 9. God says that's how it's going to go down. This random kind of non-Israelite woman who just walks on the scene in this tent and, and whacks a tent peg in this guy's head, she's meant to point us to the fact that God has intervened and acted. You know, in like kind of old school Batman movies or comic books or the cartoons, how Batman would kind of go around and fight and crime and stuff and he'd beat up all the baddies and then like he would like deliver them to the police station and stuff, like he'd just leave them kind of tied up like somewhere for the police to come along and grab the baddies and, and, and the police guys or whoever would kind of turn up and be like, oh, tied up baddies, how'd they get there? And it's kind of like a bit of a mystery but then you see like the bat signal and they're like, ah, good on you Batman, that kind of thing, right? That kind of Batman signal in the sky. Well, Sisera lying on the ground here with a tent peg through his head is kind of like God's bat signal off in the distance saying, God was here. This didn't happen any other way except for the fact that God made it happen. He promised Barak ahead of time that this is how it would happen. And then, well, suddenly there's a chick standing there with like a, a hammer going, yeah, that's, that's how it went down. And so that's what happened. God did it. 
in a way that would make everyone clear that it wasn't anyone else's work except for God's. And so he gets the praise, he gets the glory, he is the victor. And we can praise God too. Because not only has God done all the saving for Israel here in this chapter, he's done all the saving for us through Jesus who died on the cross. And so God deserves all the glory. He's done it. Jesus is the hero. And so praise Jesus with your mouth. When you sing, when you pray, when you talk about how good he is, praise Jesus that way. Praise Jesus with your whole life in the way that you live because he is the hero. Third and last short thing to see, though, in this passage, and it follows from those other two. God is a warrior. God gets all the glory. And to make all of that happen, God is sovereign. Sovereign just means in control of everything. See, God promises ahead of time that a thing's going to happen, and then he makes it happen. He says it, and then he does it actively. He makes it happen. See, he promises in verse 9 that Sisera is going to die at the hands of a woman. He said that's how it's going to go down. And then kind of randomly it says that there's this tent in verse 11 and Heber, the the Kenite, live there and blah, blah, blah. And then kind of everything kind of happens and God routes the army, however he did that. And then the one guy runs away on foot and then he ends up in this tent because he's sovereign. And then the story ends with Sisera dead with a tent peg through his head. (laughs) Didn't mean to rhyme that. Um, Ends up that way because God ordained it. God is sovereign. He can't be stopped. When he says things will happen, they're going to happen. Now, often when we talk about God's sovereignty, God being in control, maybe for you it kind of brings up feelings of of frustration or confusion or something like that. might bring up memories of spending hours in your G-teams fighting about words like predestination and things like that, or at school, if you go to that sort of school. Maybe you've had bad experiences with Christians who use this doctrine of God's sovereignty to kind of bully other people. But here's the thing. God being in control, God's sovereignty, is supposed to be the the best thing in the world. It's supposed to be an awesome thing. Think through this with me. God tells Barak that he's going to win. And he could have trusted God, but he doesn't. And so he says, I'm going to make it happen another way. And he does that. God tells Barak that Sisera will die at the hands of a woman. And he does that. He sovereignly makes it happen. Way back in the beginning of the Bible, God says to Abraham, you're going to have heaps of children and it's going to become this special nation called Israel. God sovereignly makes that happen. There's never any question. He's never going to get thwarted or fail. He makes it happen. God promises the world that there's going to be a saviour, Jesus. And then Jesus turns up, just as God promised, and, and he's the one who dies on the cross. Every single thing that God ever promised happened. God never lies. And tonight, God has promised you that if you're in Jesus, you will have eternal life your sin has been dealt with it has been paid for god's promised you that if you're in jesus do you trust him 
Do you trust the one who's sovereign and in control? He's never lied. He's never been beaten. He always wins. He always gets the glory. He's sovereign in all of that. So guys, we can, we can rest in that. We can trust God for our salvation. Our sin really has been dealt with. We really do have peace. We don't have to kind of sit up late at night worrying about whether the things that we did that day are going to mean that God's going to love us less or that we're not saved or whatever it is. If we're in Christ, we have a promise from God that we are right with him. If God is sovereign, that is an awesome thing. See what a glorious God we have. A God who's a warrior, a God who gets all the glory, and a God who's sovereign. Trust that God, rely on him, live to praise that God. I'm going to pray. Father God, we want to praise you for who you are. Lord, we're just blown away by your goodness, by your might. We praise you that you have victory over sin and Satan and and death. And Lord, we pray that we trust that and give you all the glory. Amen.